Genesis, um, chapter 2, and here we go. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. It's good to be with you. Um, uh, it's Father's Day and it's hot, so I'm wearing shorts. You guys get to look at my, my shins today. I don't normally wear shorts, so um, uh, sorry about that. Um, or you're welcome, depending on your perspective. Um, I want to wish all the dads here a uh, happy Father's Day. Um, just thankful to God for you men and the ways that you, you serve uh, and love and lead your families, the way that you, you love and serve our church well. Uh, I know that there's um, a, a number of you who, um, man, when you, uh, w- when you first met Jesus like a couple, couple years ago, um, you didn't know how to do this. You didn't know who God was. You didn't know what your role was in your family. Um, but I've seen a number of you just kind of grow in that role. Uh, and I know we're, we're, a, we're a small and young church family, but uh, I just want to say that I would rather fight alongside just a few good men in the trenches than um, be part of a large crowd that just loves to be entertained. Uh, and so I can't tell you how glad I am to be here and um, just want to say, Happy Father's Day to you men. Uh, If you are a guest or streaming for the first time, we're uh, in the middle of a series. Uh, We're just starting a series, rather, through the book of Genesis. Uh, The first book of the Bible, we're calling it the original origin story. And what we've been talking about so far is God's design of the universe, uh, his design for humanity. And then today, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 of Genesis chapter 2, where we see that God has a lot to say about relationships, about gender, um, about about marriage. Uh, So I'm looking around. It'll be a little spicy in some points. And so I'm just kind of, kind of warning you. You might want to put your uh, your kid in the kids' church. But um, we got some big items to go through. And so let me let me pray, uh, and and we'll get started. Uh, Father, I thank you so much uh, for this church family. I pray uh, for the men and for the fathers in this room that they would be um, just loved and, and, and honored and celebrated uh, today. I pray for those for whom uh, Father's Day uh, is maybe a hard or painful day. Uh, one uh, that uh, maybe um, makes us miss uh, a father that's no longer here, or um, or just 
think about the the, the father that um, we we always wanted. And so, Lord, I, I pray that for all of us, um, that we would just find peace and strength and comfort in knowing that you, God, are our perfect father. We gather now to learn from you and to worship you, to make much of you, and we just pray that you be uh, honored uh, through our worship and in our presence. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So uh, the Bible tells us um, that um, God made us to be in relationship. We've, we've seen this uh, throughout Genesis 1 and 2. He's made us to be in relationship with him and with other people. Uh, it's part of what it means to be made in his image. And if you think about marriage, which is the, just the ultimate picture of that, being uh, in relationship with others, and if you think about it long enough and, and hard enough, you're sort of forced to wonder, um, what is this thing? What is marriage? Who created it? And why are we the only species on the face of the planet that seems to celebrate uh, marriage in this way? Why do, our, why do our wedding ceremonies feel so sacred and spiritual? And that's because marriage and family are rooted in what it means for us to be, to be human, what it means for us to be made in the image of God and in the likeness of God. So here's, here's the main point of this text. The main point is that men and women are meaningfully created in the image of God and for the purposes of God, each gender being equal in value yet distinct in their role. And so men and women are meaningfully created in the image of God and for the purposes of God, but each gender, male and female, is equal in value yet distinct in their role. And so here's the first point I want you to see from our text. Point number one is that marriage, as God designed it, is beautiful. Marriage is God's beautiful design. We see in verse 18, it says that the Lord God then said, and at the beginning of that verse, that word then, remember, this is coming right after God gave a job to Adam. He placed Adam in the garden and he said, hey, I want you to tend this. I want you to nurture this garden. And so right after that, verse 17, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone and I will make a helper corresponding to him. And now, if you've been paying attention, you know that God spent a lot of time talking about what's good in creation, right? We saw that he created the day and the night, and he called it good. He created the expanse of the skies to the edges of the universe, and he called it good. He created the sea and the land, and he calls them good. And then curiously, here in, in chapter 2, verse 18, it says that God comes to a place in his creation where for the first time he says, this is not good. This is not good. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, why does he say that? Did he make a mistake in making man? Did God make a mistake here? Did he get all those other things right, but somehow he messed it up at his first shot at humanity? He looked at man and was like, eh. And so he creates woman, and he's like, yeah, that's more like it, right? I mean, the ladies would like to think so. But the Bible says that, no, God's wisdom is perfect. His plans are perfect, and his ways are without error. God says it is not good for the man to be alone because he was never meant to be alone. There's a special type of relationship that is unique to the human species, and it's this marriage relationship. 
between one man and one woman. And so God continues in verse 18, and he says, I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now, before some of you might get offended by that, you should know that that word helper is the Hebrew word ezer or ezer, and it, it, it is a, a word uh, that is not meant uh, to be understood in our uh, modern understanding of the word helper uh, to where uh, we look as a helper as sort of like a subordinate role, but rather that word helper in the original context and in the original language uh, was more of a sort of like complementary or completing type of helper. As a matter of fact, God is called the helper of his people throughout the Old Testament. He says, I am your helper. And so it is not meant to be like a derogatory or um, subordinate uh, word or role, but one that is complementary, one that helps to make whole. In the same way that God is our helper uh, as his people, a wife is a man's helper in that together they can accomplish what God has set out humanity to do. And so, again, in verse 18, at the end, he says, I will make a helper corresponding to him. And then in verses 19 through 20, it says, the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Real quick side note, um, this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, one commentator points out that like only the human species has the level of intelligence and capacity and even like language linguistic ability to order and categorize animals by species like that. And so that was a task given to the first man. And then verse 20, it says, The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. Before the man himself, no helper was found corresponding to him. And so it says that the man has no helper that corresponds to him. In other words, no one to truly compliment him in his calling. Remember the calling that he was given last week. His calling was to work. And we were, if you remember from last week, work was originally a good thing. We established that. Work was originally meant to be a good thing, that if any of us find our work difficult or hard, that's just a result of the fall. But it was originally intended to give us purpose and, and, and creative calling. Uh, work was meant to uh, be a means of provision and for human flourishing. And so man is in this sort of sweet spot in God's creation. He's given, he's placed in paradise. He's given this beautiful home. He's given honorable work to do to tend and keep God's garden. It's like this ideal, idyllic setting. And yet God says, hey, something here is not good. This is somehow not complete. There are all sorts of animals in God's creation that could have helped the first man in his work. The ox could have helped him cultivate the ground. The horse could help him work the field. But not even a golden retriever would be enough for the man to feel complete. And so God creates woman. He creates the covenant of marriage. Now, let me just briefly sidestep for a second. I want to address the nature of, um, of singleness. 
And I think it's important to do here because um, if this, even if you're married, you still need to hear this because as you belong to a church family that includes also single men and women, you need to understand that the word of God uh, speaks to this and so that you can come alongside one another in helpful ways. And so if, it is not, if the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone, then you might be wondering, like, is singleness wrong? The undisputed answer in the scriptures would be no. No, absolutely not. And we know that because Jesus, our Lord, is the perfect man. He was perfectly whole. He was perfectly righteous and holy. And in case you didn't know, he was single. He was not married. The Apostle Paul redeems singleness in a letter to the Corinthians where he commends singleness as an opportunity for us to live with an undivided heart. I want you to see this really quick in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says to them, he says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I'm saying this for your own benefit, Paul says, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. What he's saying here is that the single life gives one a unique opportunity, uh, opportunity to live an undivided life. You see, before uh, my wife and I, Alyssa, before we even got serious in our, our dating, I was a more undivided man. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I, I would just wake up in the morning and have to th- not, and I, I'd have to think about what it is that that just just I need to do for work, right? And I'd plan my day accordingly, and and I would just think about what I need to read for my studies and plan my day accordingly. And if a buddy of mine like called or texted and said like, hey, could we meet up? Could we hang? Uh, I need some counsel. Uh, maybe he wanted to come over. Um, the answer would probably be, yeah, sure, yeah. Let, let me just. Move some things around if I'm not available. I can't do that as a married man. And now when I wake up, I'm not just thinking about my work. I'm also thinking about my family's agenda. I'm not just thinking about what I want to read for my studies, but I'm thinking about what I need to study and know and grow in for the good of my wife and family. And if a buddy calls and wants to hang out or needs some some counsel, I need to make sure uh, that that doesn't interfere with my commitment to my wife and my family. I had a single friend who uh, once dropped out of nursing school and decided to help plant uh, and and start a a church and orphanage. Uh, She was on a church planting team and helped start an orphanage in Rwanda. Uh, And she she just felt this pull from the Holy Spirit. She made a decision, and she was gone in in just a matter of a few months. She's married now, uh, but at the time, she was single. It was a lot easier to make a decision like that so quickly uh, back then when she was single. See, as a married man or woman, your attention is divided. You have a spouse to love, a home to manage, kids to disciple. And look, marriage has its own unique blessings and opportunities that bring glory to God, but you need to hear me clearly that an unmarried person is not incomplete. An unmarried person is not incapable of righteousness. The point of this passage is not to say that God wants all people to be married, which, by the way, would be mathematically impossible, but that 
The point is that marriage is an ordinance of God. It is intentionally and purposefully crafted and created by God as a gift to humanity as a whole, necessary for procreation, necessary for our enjoyment, necessary for human flourishing, and necessary to live out our calling. It's that marriage is part of God's beautiful design for us as humanity. And so back to Genesis 2, we see then how God responds in verses 21 and 22. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Now that word for rib can also be translated side in the original Hebrew. And why is that significant? It's because, to paraphrase Matthew Henry, who was an early Bible commentator, he says, the point of this figurative language here is that woman is not created from man's head to rule over him or from his feet to be trampled by him, but from his side, showing uh, a common mutuality, show equality, that she as woman is his fellow image bearer, created from his side to have equal dignity, value, and worth. And at his side, she's available for him to protect and care for. Now, you need to understand that this contradicts what a lot of the narratives in our culture today say. This contradicts what a lot of radical feminists say, when radical feminists say that all men are bad and all men are toxic, when they say that men oppress women and that women progress forward when they say that women have superior intellect or disposition and so therefore should have most, if not all, of the power and influence in society. The Bible's teaching also contradicts what, on the other hand, the radical uh, patriarchy uh, people would say. The radical red pill patriarchs, they would say uh, that to the other extreme, they would say women are too weak, they're too emotional, they mess up everything, and so they can't be trusted with anything outside of the kitchen or the nursery. They would say that, that, uh, that this version uh, of masculinity, that our culture's version of masculinity uh, is, is not strong and bold enough. But you need to know that their version of masculinity, the, the radical red pill version of uh, uh, masculinity, is actually not masculine at all. It's not manly at all. It's wicked and oppressive. It's the, um, I almost said a word I shouldn't say, but it's the jerks. It's the jerks in this camp that make those radical feminists feel like they need to raise up their voices. And so this leads us into our second point where uh, I want us to see that marriage's beautiful design is complementary in nature. Complementary in nature. And what I mean by complementary is not like, hey, we'll see nice things about each other, but it's a type of compliment uh, with two E's uh, where you, you uh, fulfill, help one another fulfill your calling. You complement one another. Now, there are two camps within Christianity that are the alternatives to the two extremes uh, that we just uh, went over. 
And just so you know, the radical version of feminism, and I say radical feminism because there are some things uh, that feminists get right in terms of um, sticking up for uh, women's dignity and value and worth. And so when I say radical feminism, I'm talking about uh, a certain fringe element of that. And when I talk about elements of patriarchy, there are some things uh, that patriarchy gets right in calling men to, uh, to lead well and to be honorable. Uh, to be chivalrous, uh, to take care of their homes and provide for their families. Uh, but I'm talking when I say radical patriarchs, we'll talk about the red pill variety. What I'm talking about is is those who are on this fringe elements that are more oppressive in nature. And so those two camps that we already went over have no home within a Christian worldview. But there are two camps within a Christian worldview that are alternatives to these two extremes. And you need to know about them. The first is what we would call egalitarianism. Egalitarianism argues that both men and women are equal in essence, dignity, in value, and in their roles. And that our differences are really only biological in our makeup. We are virtually identical and interchangeable in every other way. And by interchangeable, that means uh, we're interchangeable in who can serve in different offices in the church, who can serve as a head of a home, head of a household. Uh, and so this is where uh, a lot of uh, egalitarians believe that a woman can be the head of a household. They can serve uh, as, as, as pastor or elder or bishop in the church. Egalitarians have no, seen no meaningful distinction between men and women uh, in these various spheres other than biology. Now, there's a, another view, another camp within the Christian worldview um, that is also an alternative to those extremes we went over earlier, and this is what we would call complementarianism. You may have heard us use this term before because this is a position that we hold to as a church by our confession of faith. Complementarianism also teaches that both men and women are equal in essence, in dignity, in value, and worth but that we are distinct and different in our roles and responsibilities, particularly in the home and in the church. And so under God's sovereign lordship, complementarians believe that under God's lordship, that husbands are to, first of all, submit to God and his word, but then they are to lovingly and sacrificially lead their families that they are to wash their wives in the water of the word and make sure that their wives are growing and flourishing in their faith. It means that wives are to respect and follow that leadership and that children are to honor and obey their mother and father in the home. It means that the household of God is led and you could say pastored by qualified men who've, who've uh, uh, proven themselves first in the home um, by pastoring uh, the home. Now, you should know that like everything that I just said is just a bunch of different Bible verses that we put together. And it might be helpful for you to hear uh, from a female voice. This is from Kathy Keller, uh, who uh, you might be familiar with her name. She's the wife of the uh, recently um, deceased Tim Keller. Uh, but Kathy Keller uh, actually went to seminary um, to, because uh, she, she wanted to be uh, a pastor uh, in a church. And... Uh, uh, she, as she was studying in seminary and studying the scriptures, she actually became convinced of uh, a complementarian position. And so she went into seminary with an egalitarian viewpoint, but she came out with a complementarian viewpoint. And what's interesting is that uh, for Kathy Keller, when she actually like stood before um, a panel of her peers to explain how she changed her, her position, 
she was yelled at and sneered at and derided. Talk about tolerance, right? Um, But here's what she says uh, in an interview on this topic. She points out that all of God's designs are beautiful, sometimes intricate, sometimes difficult to master and affected by sin, but they're all glorious nonetheless. In marriages that embrace God's design, you both get to, quote unquote, play the Jesus role. Husbands get to imitate Jesus as the servant leader who will go to any length, even to death, to serve and purify his bride. Wives can look to Jesus as he was worshipped in Philippians 2, submissive to the role of Ezer, which is helper, in full knowledge of her equality. You see, this is what we believe to be uh, the biblical view, one that we would call complementarian. In other words, men and women created equal in value, dignity, and worth, but distinct into complement one another. And so what God does is he slits Adam's side. He takes a rib from Adam, and then he, he begins to fashion a woman. And now, that word for made, when it, when it says there in Genesis 2 that God from that rib made a woman, um, that word for made is, is a different word than what he used when he was talking about making the man. You see, when God created the first man, what did, it, what did he do? He reached into the ground. He got his fingernails dirty. He got some dirt together, and then he formed the man. Splat, 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 right? But the word made here used for the woman is it's, it's a lot more delicate. Some translations will use the word uh, fashion, that he, God fashioned her from the rib. It's meant to give us the sense that God formed and fashioned her uh, intricately. Delicately. Now, what does that mean? It means that God made no mistake in making the woman the way he made her as a helper for the man. God took a piece of him and he made a whole other thing. And God was involved in it in making this whole other thing. He didn't just carbon copy. He didn't just like splat here and splat there. No, he was intricately involved to make woman something like the man, but different from the man. In the same way that red and blue are alike because they're both colors, but they are different. Man and women are alike because they're both made in the image of God, but they are distinct. Again, equal in value, dignity and worth, but distinct in their roles. And so God creates woman out of the man's side, and like a father and bride on her wedding day, he takes her, he takes the woman and brings her to uh, the man, uh, which, by the way, is where we get that tradition from. And then in verse 23, it says, at that point, the man said, this one, speaking of the woman, this one at last is bone of my bone." Flesh of my flesh, this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, you'll notice in your print Bible uh, that this is indented in the text. And that's because in the original language, this is written as a song. It's poetic in nature. Adam is a poet, and you didn't know it. What we have is the first recorded words in all of human history. It's a, and it's a poetic song from a husband to his wife. God is the first and ultimate creator, but here at the side of the first woman, 
Adam gets creative. Something creative awakens in him. Uh, maybe not the only thing that awakened in him. Uh, I told you this might be PG-13. But uh, verse 24, he says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, here in these two verses, we see more of God's intricate, beautiful design for marriage. And we see that God's design for marriage has some key elements that should be present for a healthy marriage relationship. I want to go through them quickly for you. Uh, when we are looking at this text, at God's beautiful design for marriage, we see that it involves a number of things. Um, first, it involves relational priority. Number one, relational priority. We see this uh, uh, when it says that a man leaves his father and mother. You see, for a man to move toward a new life with his wife, he must first leave his parents. Now, what this means is that before a man can have a wife, he needs to be the kind of man who can be responsible and independent, the kind of man who can stand on his own two feet. He can't be the kind of, the kind of guy who just runs back to his parents every time something hard happens. And just to be clear, the woman is called to do the same. We see this in other scriptures. For example, in Psalm 45, where it talks about a daughter having to leave uh, her father's house in marriage. And by the way, this is obviously written for, for our eyes, since Adam himself didn't have any parents. Um, but I want to talk about what it means for a man to leave his parents. Now, this could be um, 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 leaving a physical uh, uh, location. It could be a physical relocation. It could be that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, we know that because in ancient Israel, newlyweds didn't move away when they got married, but they actually moved into the greater family compound. The idea here is that leave your father and mother is more of having your priorities reordered. Your primary loyalty is now not to your family anymore. It's not to your boys and girls that you used to hang out with. It's not to the guys. Your primary loyalty is not even to your children if you have them. Your primary loyalty is to your spouse, to your wife, or to your husband. They become the most important person in your life. Your relationship with them supersedes all the other relationships. You might say, well, that's not how our family's ever worked. Well, I'd say your family's wrong. This is the word of God, and it's perfect. It revives the soul. This is where we get God's wisdom from. And so if we want God's beautiful design for marriage, that must involve some level of relational priority, a first level of relational priority. But secondly, there needs to also be present an in intentional pursuit. And we see this when it says that uh, he leaves his father and mother to bond with his wife. He bonds with his wife, or some translations say he becomes united to his wife. Marriage is a movement away from your previous family and toward your spouse. That word bonds in the original Hebrew is the word dabak, which is a strong word. It evokes a sense of drawing closer together, a bonding that gets stronger over time. It's a word where we get the idea of covenant from. And as we mentioned before, covenant is more than just a mere commitment. It's more than a mere promise. It's a deep, permanent, personal, and binding commitment. It's more than just saying, I love you, 
It's the binding promise of a lasting love. It's a promise to love and to hold and to cherish, regardless of whatever ups and downs come your way, regardless of how great or how poor your circumstances you might find yourself in, regardless of it's a season where the romance is blooming or it's a season where the romance is experiencing a bit of drought. It is lasting love through thick and thin. That's why we say at weddings, for richer or poor, in plenty and in want, till, till in sickness and in death, till death do we part. And look, this, this covenant idea totally contradicts and flies in the face of what our culture tries to tell us. Like, we're taught by the culture that a satisfying love and marriage isn't so much about covenant, but about chemistry where you're increasingly uh, chasing that constant electric thrill. Or we're taught that marriage is more of a contract. Hey, if you just do this for me, then I'm going to do this for you. And then, hey, we're both, we'll both be happy. But both marriage by chemistry and marriage by contract are just broken imitations of marriage as God designed it to be, which is marriage by covenant. Those first two are all about serving yourself in some way, but the last one, the truest one, is about giving yourself to serve another and bringing glory to God in the process. And so this intentional pursuit is about forming over time this covenant commitment through an ongoing common experience through suffering together and engaging in constant communication with one another. The idea is that marriage is hard. Marriage is a lot of work. It takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of forgiving, a lot of pursuing, a lot of repenting, a lot of praying. Like a lot of other things, we don't naturally drift toward health in our marriage relationships. We will naturally drift toward dysfunction because we're sinners. We're selfish. And so there needs to be this intentional pursuit of God and of one another. Number three, uh, there also needs to be, in God's beautiful design for marriage, there needs to be a sexual partnership. He says when they, they bind to one another, they become one flesh. One flesh, what is he talking about? He's talking about a bonding that is not just emotional and spiritual, but physical, he's, he's talking about sex, in case you didn't realize. <laughs> You're like, did, can we say that in church? We just did. Um, you need to know. You need to know this about sex. You need to know that sexual intimacy is an essential part of a marriage relationship. It's a part of God's beautiful design. God is the one who's saying here, hey, look, the re all of this happens. This is why, by the way. Uh, that they become one flesh, that a man leaves his father and mother and becomes one flesh. Like, this is God's design. He's not surprised by sex. He's not like, Ew, Adam, what are you doing there, right? He's not surprised by that. He's not grossed out by that. You need to know that the Bible is very pro-sex. Genesis has actually a lot to say throughout its pages about sex and marriage. This is just the first and most pointed place that we see it. But the problem is that a lot, in a lot of Christian traditions and churches, uh, we tend to treat sex like it's a dirty word, like it's, the only, like it's a, a taboo topic, like the only thing it's good for is procreation. 
Or we become focused only on the things that the Bible forbids, right? We don't talk about what the Bible calls us to in sex, but we talk about what God, the Bible forbids in terms of sex. And so our kids end up uh, uh, thinking that sex is dirty and taboo and gross, and they end up getting into relationships and marriage and, and jacking it all up, and we just kind of like, what happened, right? How did that happen? But you need to know that God's word is pro-sex because it is pro-marriage, Sex is a gift from God intended to be received and enjoyed from those within a covenant marriage relationship. One man and one woman united for life. And it is a gift from God that should be enjoyed regularly. It should be enjoyed frequently within the context of a covenant marriage. Now to enjoy marriage the way that God has designed it, we don't just need those first three things. We also need protective purity. We also need protective purity, and we really get to the heart of this in verse 25 when it simply says that both the man and his wife were naked, and yet they felt no shame. What we have here is what it's like for humanity to exist with one another before the fall of sin. There's an innocence to their relationship. They're free of sin. They're free of shame. They're free of hiding. Now, because of the fall, and we live on this side of the fall, we know that it is impossible to have a relationship, a marriage relationship that is free of sin. But we didn't know that in Christ, that that type of relationship should be pursued. There should be no hiding. There should be no shame. This is something we should fight for, to pursue honesty and to pursue holiness together in the marriage covenant relationship. So that both the man and his wife, in their nakedness, that's emotional nakedness, that's spiritual nakedness, psychological nakedness, with one another, we feel no shame because of how loved and accepted we are in Christ our Lord. Now, this leads us into our third and final point. We'll get through this quickly, and then we'll close. But our last point is that marriage is a gift to enjoy, not a deity to worship. Marriage is a gift to enjoy, not a deity to worship. The Apostle Paul, who's a New Testament writer, says in Ephesians 5 that this powerful reality in marriage of two becoming one flesh is a mystery that displays the relationship between Jesus and the church. I'll show you right there in Ephesians 5. Uh, it says, verse 24, 25, 31, and 32, Paul says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For this reason, uh, a man will live or will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery, he says, is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, what is he saying here? Paul's saying that marriage, as God designed it, is intended to somehow mysteriously be a picture of Jesus's loving relationship with his own bride, the church. 
And in the same way that Jesus loves his people and honors them above all creation, so should a husband and wife love, serve, and honor one another. Look, this is what makes marriage so unique. This is what makes our species so uh, just special and spectacular, what makes marriage so wonderful and beautiful. And just, just to be clear, marriage is a wonderful thing just in and of itself, just the way that God designed it, intricately designed. But you need to see that it primarily and first of all derives its beauty not in love that is shared between two creatures, but in how that love points to an even greater love, the love of God towards his people in Jesus Christ. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, a mysterious picture of the gospel. In premarital counseling, um, one of the resources that Ellis and I will often walk couples through is um, Tim Keller's book on marriage, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, that he actually co-authored with his wife, Kathy. And in that book, he gives a helpful and simple definition of the gospel. He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so the beauty of the gospel is found in how those two realities collide. Yes, you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you could ever dare believe. But at the same time, you are more loved, more cherished, more pursued, more adored, and more accepted in Jesus Christ than you could ever dare to hope. You see, the beauty of the gospel isn't just that God loves us, but that he loves us in spite of how unlovable we are. That means that our marriages will flourish best when we make the mission of marriage to display that gospel. This means that when a husband and wife who are called to one another, yet admitting that they're broken sinners themselves, pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness together, that means that when they look at one another, they are seeking to get a glimpse of the wonderful person that God is creating and recreating. It means that a husband and wife seek to not come down on one another for the flaws in character or habits, but that they're committed through their covenant to press on through those difficulties, to press on through their imperfections and weaknesses and say to one another, man, I see who God's making you to be. I see evidence of his grace at work in you, and I love what God is doing in you, and I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you in that. I want to be your leader in that. I want to be your helper in that. I want to partner with you in the journey of God growing you to be the man or woman he wants you to be. You see, this is the glory and beauty of marriage as God designed it. It's that man and woman together fulfill the mission of spreading God's beauty and goodness to the ends of the earth. 
We can't do it alone. We can't do it as a single gendered species. We need marriage. We need family. We need one another. We need community. We need the local church. The Bible begins, in a sense, and ends in marriage. We just read the beginning in Genesis 2, but at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 19, we see another marriage. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where Jesus is revealed and glorified as the Lamb who was slain to take away all our sins. And the church is presented to him as a perfect and righteous bride. Not because we were perfect in our life on earth, but because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, in the end, we'll be married to God himself. One day, our perfect relationship with God will be fully restored and never to be broken again. But until then, we enjoy the gifts of relationship. We join to one another in community. And we understand the unique gift that marriage and gender and sexuality is to God's people. As we have the unique opportunity through those gifts to point the world to a God who loves and a gospel that saves. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.